Welcome, everybody. This is Natalie. And this is Tiffany, and we're your hosts of Wisterhood, a podcast by Women in Science Portland. We created Wisterhood to be our community of support for women in science and their allies. And today we have a special guest, the one and only Susan Holbeck. Susan has an incredible background and an impressive professional pathway. It is a lot, but we have to do it justice by sharing her amazing accomplishments. Susan was born in Corpus Christi, Texas, and moved 13 times before she graduated high school, living in Texas, Bermuda, Delaware, Kentucky, and Ohio. She began her science career with a BS in genetics from The Ohio State, worked at McPherson Chemistry Labs as an undergrad, and continued to earn an MS in genetics and cellular biology from Washington State. In between these two degrees, she worked for Battelle Memorial Institute in Columbus, Ohio, testing carcinogens and toxins for the FDA. She continued on to make monoclonal antibodies to human collagen at Shriners Hospital in Portland. So I'm actually going to pause here because we have more to share, but I have to know before we move on, Susan, why did you pick this genetics and cellular biology as your MS focus, like what, what experiences, what kind of things came up in your life that led you in that direction? Well, it began when I went to college, I thought I was going to be a biochemistry major and I wanted to go in being a doctor pre-med and, um, and I found chemistry, it was pretty hard. Biochemistry was even harder. And so as I was having difficulty with the biochem, I uh, came across genetics, which was, uh, it just, for some reason, it was like, I, I was remembering it as opposed to learning it. It really resonated with me. And I decided to switch my major to genetics. And I'll, I'll never forget when I went home to tell my dad that I am now a uh, genetics major, not a biochemistry major. And he uh, said to me, well, there's no future in genetics. So I, I proved him wrong because of course that's one of the big, biggest growing sciences. But um, I just, I love the mathematical piece of it. I liked I could use some of the chemistry and biochemistry in it. And, um, and it just fascinated me. I feel like a follow-up on that is, you know, your, your dad saying like, there's no future in that. Um, I know in past episodes, Natalie and myself and Elizabeth, when, when she was, um, when we were going through some different questions would ask like, did you have any roadblocks? on your way to science um, in like studying it? Because I feel like if it's not that there's no future in it, it's maybe that you weren't supposed to be part of that future. Or uh, do you know what I mean? Um, did you experience those roadblocks at all in your studies? I did. I, um, I'm i in an age where uh, science wasn't necessarily encouraged for girls and um, especially went the harder sciences. So I had, um, but my father and my family were very supportive of college and science in general, but they really had their eye on the prize that I would become a medical doctor. And so they just didn't see, you know, genetics was, wasn't anything that was being talked about. It was mostly plant genetics. It was breeding, um, uh, like breeding a better chicken for uh, Campbell's soups you know, that kind of a thing, the molecular piece didn't really start happening until I was in graduate school when, when technology was advancing a lot more in that. But, uh, but along the way, I did have some, 
male uh, teachers that weren't as encouraging as I would have liked or wanted as a female student. It, I had that occur to me in high school um, by a chemistry teacher who um, kind of picked on me as being a bright uh, female in the classroom. It happened in college when I was in math classes that were very advanced and I was taking them as electives and I was beating all of the boys. I was the only girl in the class and I was scoring a hundreds on the test and they had to take it for their majors and they were scoring in the thirties. So I was blowing the curve and I got picked on. So, uh, I, yeah, being a woman was harder, but I guess it made me fight more. So for me, it was an incentive that if someone was telling me I couldn't do a thing, I wanted to do it even more. I mean, as someone who just finished taking biochem and I mean, I feel absolutely feel that struggle. And I think that, um, I just can't even imagine what it would necessarily be like to be in situations where, um, being a woman in those classrooms was already sort of, uh, frowned upon, um, on top of like just amino acids. After your time getting your degrees, Susan took time out of the workforce to be an at-home mom for her children. And during this time, her family moved to Ithaca, New York, where her husband worked for Cornell. And while there, she had uh, many pursuits as the director of a low-income daycare center, founding a sewing cooperative for low-income women called Sew Together, starting a baking business called Fantaflon. Is that correct? Fantaflon and tarts. It's something my grandmother used to say. Perfect. Called Fantaflon and tarts. I love it. Um, which is sold at a farmer's market and developed a children's line of clothing called So Big, which she sold at an art- artist cooperative. I feel like you were so ahead of your time, right? This is just like Portland today, even though it was so long ago. But speaking of Portland, um, fate and her husband's job is what brought them back to Portland. And while volunteering at her children's school, she became a great asset to the Beaverton School District in a number of roles, including but not limited to running school science fairs, volunteering in the classroom and teaching science, becoming an instructional assistant. And through this, it led her to pursue a master's in teaching as if you didn't have enough education already. And she did that through Pacific University. From there, she was a teacher at Conestoga Middle School, a founder of the SUMA program for highly gifted children in Beaverton and got her doctorate in educational methodology. She became the science specialist for the Beaverton School District and then moved on to become the program administrator for K-12 science in the Portland Public Schools, one of our biggest school district here in the state, and has recently retired in June. So congratulations, but there's one last bit. Susan is continuing to work with the Portland Metro STEM partnership on the statewide high school science curriculum known as the Patterns Approach. This curriculum is now used for more than a third of the students in Oregon. What has Susan not done? I feel like (laughs) she has done all the things. (laughs) So we're going to try our best over the next few, however long an hour, to see what we can do to slice and dice this long, extensive career. So to maybe go back a little bit to um, the, I guess, the the most recent sort of things that you're working on with Suman Beaverton and um, your role in the patterns approach, um, 
which is now like the curriculum that students use in Oregon, while you were doing that, what did your day-to-day look like? And um, did you find that you were working with a lot of people from like what parts of education and what was that all like for you? So um, I came into the the Beaverton science specialist position as a middle school science teacher. And the very first thing that I had to figure out was what's going on in high school. And I had my own children's experience who were in high school and I started looking at uh, data. So I would say one of the biggest things for me of people that I worked with were um, people who had access to district level data and, um, and it could help me with that analysis. And what I found was that there were 188 different ways that students could get their three science credits in Beaverton. And when we did the same analysis in Portland, it was 255 different ways. There was no kind of start at A, go to B, go to C. And, and when you do this and you have all of these different pathways, there is a, becomes a huge equity issue that certain students are taking advanced courses, other students do not have access to that or are not taking them. And some were taking very low level science courses that existed in the system. So my first thing that actually drove the work that I did and I'm continuing to do today was to ask the question, you know, can we have one science sequence that every student takes have those courses build on each other and have those and have all students prepared to take AP, IB courses, dual credit courses, or are ready for college and career. And this work was brought to a group of teachers in the Beaverton School District, and we worked together. We could not have done this work without their thoughts and planning and input into what the system could do to change, to do this systematic change. And we opted on a kind of physics first model. So there was a lot of professional development. There's a lot of talking. There's a lot of networking. There was a lot of building relationships and trust in the system that didn't exist there before. There's, If you're not working in a school district, you, you may not realize that there's always a tension between schools, teachers, and central office. So, um, so building that trust was a really important part of that. And in the end, this group, in fact, I, I believe at the time, every science teacher in Beaverton voted to do a physics first model. And so we had the courses established, so that was great. But then we had to figure out what do those courses look like? So there was the complete redesign of the physics, chemistry, and biology courses. And of course, that had to be done with teachers, um, uh, teachers who taught those courses, TOSAs. Um, so I would say a lot of my work then became coordinating groups of teachers to help write curriculum and, um, and then the professional development that went along with that curriculum. What would you say, because I, having come from schools, I know how so many teachers have different styles and different preferences. And when you were coordinating such large groups, and I, I, I'm guessing you did it also in PPS, but 
what would you say is the biggest challenge about trying to get groups to some kind of consensus? Or is it just kind of a majority rule and sorry, a few of you are going to be unhappy? Um, how do you make those hard decisions or how have you made them? Well, in Beaverton, we did do a consensus model. And that was really important to me because this is kind of the uh, initiation of this idea. And I think the way that I was able to get teachers who really had to do the work. I mean, the, 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 the district, i.e. me, had this idea that we needed a single sequence, but I didn't want to think that I knew the answer to what how that was going to be implemented. And I had to trust that the teachers would be there to help figure that out. And, um, and the way that I did that was to be very clear on what the why was. Like, why do we need to change? Why are we gonna kind of upend our entire system, um, throw out all the courses that we teach and start again? Like, what, what is the argument that needs to be made that will incentivize people to actually do this tremendous amount of work? And the argument was the tracking problem that existed in our system, that we had very few African-American students or students of color in any of our advanced courses. We had very few actually minority students taking full year science courses. At the time, um, we had uh, many schools had elective courses that, that students could take. So there were and they could take them in any order. So there was no way to build rigor. And I also walked through um, advanced physics courses and I saw like one girl and out of 25 students. So Susan, I knew that we had a problem there. For our listeners, could you explain what tracking is and what that means if they are not involved in education? Yeah, so tracking is when you can predict when, uh, when a, a the type of courses that students will take by ethnicity, by if they're English language learner, um, if they're or male or female. And it means that there's different levels of courses. A high course could be a medium course and a, a lower course, so less rigor. And, um, and if, it, if a school district is tracked, what you will see is that a high proportion of students in the highest level of classes, which would be full year classes with laboratory experiences aligned to the NGSS or next generation science standards or AP um, advanced placement or international baccalaureate IB courses that if you look at those, um, you will see a disproportionate amount of students that are white or um, a high socioeconomic status. Whereas in the courses that we considered lower level, which would be less likely to be aligned to standards, less likely to have laboratory or inquiry or engineering experiences, um, less likely to have rigor will be students of color. So when you can use your data and predict that and see that happening, that's tracking. You know, it's interesting. We talked about that as an elementary uh, educator a lot because we talked about being that foundation for tracking that comes later because we found that a lot of our students, depending on the teacher they had or the school they went to in elementary, they didn't get science or as rigorous of math. 
And so then they didn't get placed into higher courses in middle school mm -hmm. or in high school. And so it was this kind of this layered situation where if you weren't in an advanced class by middle school, you were never really going to be successful in those advanced classes by high school. And so it's this compounding situation. And we, I, I personally witnessed it a lot in, you know, title schools where they might double down on reading in elementary and then skip a lot of the actual science. They might read about science topics, but not really do science. And it became really, um, as a middle school teacher, you probably saw kids come in who they just hadn't had, right. any, you know, so we would get many students coming into sixth grade who had never had science. It was very dependent on who their teacher was. And if they were a student from a higher socioeconomic school, they're much more likely to have had a teacher who taught science. Whereas if they came from a lower socioeconomic school, it was very unlikely that there was science even scheduled. We used to call it some teachers, though, at, at, at title schools might teach science, but we had to, we called it secret science because they were doing it against the wishes of their principal at times. And, um, it, and this is not, this was a problem across many, many districts, not just um, Portland metro districts, but across the state of Oregon and actually in the nation. Um, time for science in elementary school has been declining. But the worst statistic of all is that Oregon is 50th, uh, which is not great or was not great. I hope Say it again really loud so the <laughs> listeners hear this because I want parents and people to be mad about this. Please say that again. Yeah, Oregon was 50th in the nation, uh, according to a NAEP survey of minutes spent in science for elementary and that on average, it was um, 1.9 hours a week, which I, as a science specialist in two of the largest Oregon districts, would say was an overestimation of the time that students had for science. Um, and this was probably eight years ago when I first began this work. So, and I'll, and I'll just add on to that because um, during COVID, when um, we were moving to virtual uh, learning in the, in the uh, spring of 2020, um, the two classes that were not taught, but were, we were told we could not teach was elementary science and elementary social studies. And, and uh, these were, I thought at the time, the Black Lives Matter movement was really coming into focus. And the elementary students who had no access to understanding what was happening in the world around them as, as they were at home um, because it was, it was uh, deemed way more important that they were doing reading and math, which I agree is important. But as all of us who love science realize you do do math and reading in science as well. I have a fire in my belly hearing that because <laughs> I feel like that was a time of low engagement from students, right? Mm -hmm. Skipping, just not even attending, keeping cameras off. And it, I feel like science or even social sciences or the, any, anything would have been more engaging probably than really trying to double down on those, those harder skills that are hard to do distance. So sorry, I agree. I, I think especially, especially with children, there's this native human curiosity about the world and, um, and we almost educate it out of them if we aren't careful. And my own students in middle school would come back after attending high school and say, 
we, we don't, we aren't doing any inquiry in high school. We aren't being allowed to ask any questions. We're not making observations. And, and they felt that they were almost being clonified in this kind of science education that at least had some chance of being um, kind of responsive to students in, in elementary and middle school. And by the time they were getting into high school, it was all factual and memorization. And, um, and this was one of the things that was one of my initial drivers to trying to change how we taught science, especially in high school, because it was the one that was really the most diverged from how scientists actually do science. Yeah, totally. And I'm wondering, like, can you speak a little bit about, like, how do you bridge, like, having to have some foundational, just like factual knowledge about science and having this kind of like rigorous, uh, really engaging form of um, science education that is really a lot more representative of like what real scientists do in the field. Like, how do you make both of those happen at once? Because I think like a lot of times people in say like my parents' generation, they, they went the rote memorization route and they absolutely think that that's the only right way to do it. So like when parents come and say like, well, actually, why aren't my kids suffering the way that I did? Like, what would you say? <laughs> well, I would say that um, the NGSS or Next Generation Science Standards was the game changer. Although Oregon was a little bit advanced over many other states in the nation that we had in 2009 created standards that said that students should learn content through inquiry and hopefully engineering. Although not very many people did engineering, um, we did that, we did do that in Beaverton. But um, so this idea of the next generation science standards that students need to engage in three dimensions of um, science. One of them is content. So that is, that should be there definitely. Um, one of them is science and engineering practices, which are how scientists learn and engage in science and engineering. And the third is the cross-cutting concepts, which are the big ideas across science, like patterns, energy and matter and others. And so when that came around, it kind of gave a voice and a bridge between what I had experienced as a student, which was definitely traditional memorization style science, to what I experienced first in graduate school when I was doing uh, my own research on um, doing monoclonal antibody work and, and realizing, and then going on doing that at Shriners Hospital, that in science, you, you have to build claims, you have to provide evidence, you have to have an argument. Um, nobody's telling you what the right answer is. You do that by how does this fit in the body of literature? How do my results compare to other people's results? How often do I have to redo this to, you know, for it to be, to be valid? Or um, how can I test my assumptions? And, and, and we weren't allowing students to do any of that. We were only allowing them to, to think of science as something that everything's already been discovered because it's been in a 20 year old textbook that's sitting on my desk that my teacher is asking me to read. And that is absolutely the wrong thing. And what NGSS taught us is that 
we want students to look at the world, to call it looking at phenomena, like what are you seeing uh, in the world you can explain scientifically. And, and it gives you a different way to actually look at the world and then to actually teach science through engaging phenomena that students can relate to and observe and test and question. And I, I am a huge proponent of that shift. And I think it has done a lot to improve science education. I think it's, it, well, okay, let me back up here. Right now I'm taking, I'm studying for the MCAT, womp womp. When we think about the way that people are traditionally taught to learn science, which like you're saying, you're in a 20 year old textbook, sort of regurgitating information, um, sort of regardless of how well you truly understand it, how well you understand like how the scientific method really works. Um, how does like testing and like skill evaluation factor into all of this from your perspective? Because from my, the perspective of a student, like I remember taking Oaks tests every year mm-hmm. and it being like two weeks where you would not be doing any school at all and you just like sit in front of a computer and like try not to fall asleep <laughs> um, so what what is like I mean because there has to be I assume maybe some benchmarks but like how does that happen without it being horrible well you're right the Oaks was a terrible test and it was a content and a reading test as far as any <laughs> scientist ever like so the science um test really didn't measure have any way to measure what um, the science practices but as the Oregon standards change in 2014 and um, the the OAKS became the OSAS and the OASAS and they it, and the assessment for students who take this in fifth eighth and 11th grade is aligned to the three dimensions of the NGSS. So at least in K-12 in Oregon and all of the kind of cooperative states who've adopted NGSS, there are these um, three-dimensional assessments that actually can tell us if a student is getting, getting opportunities for the three different parts or areas of science that are part of NGSS. Um, in, uh, but I would also say the AP, the Advanced Placement Test, have changed recently to become less memorization, although there is a lot of factual information there, but there is also application of knowledge. There is a claim evidence reasoning that's part of that. So um, ACT science is actually still a really good test because there's no real memorization. All information needed to answer the questions in the science portion of the ACT is given in the context of the question. And then it's more interpretation of that information. So there's, that's really good. But um, I can't say that, you know, colleges are like, if I thought high school was slow, colleges are even slower to change. And so um, the MCAT, I'm not surprised if it's uh, memorization. I'm sure GREs still, you know, have required a lot of memorization, but it's coming. We're trying to have an impact and increase communication between the, the K-12 and um, the public universities. And one example of that has been that we've been working with PCC on a dual credit um, course that's um, part of our 
biology. So our junior level biology at, at Portland public schools, students that are enrolled in that can also get dual credit at Portland Community College. And at first the conversation was, your course isn't rigorous enough to get dual credit. And then once they learned about our course, they realized that we had a lot to offer and that they might wanna borrow some of the things that we were doing in the kind of similar course at the university level. So as we open up, I think those opportunities might increase. Susan, I wonder with your role with um, the Portland Metro STEM partnership and your work in Portland public schools, I think about the strange disconnect between industry and what they want graduates to be able to do and what the tests and you know higher ed ask how they ask them to learn. And I mean, I've only heard it through others, not because I don't work with older students or in the colleges, but um, not with students. But I feel like, yeah, how do we, how do we bridge this gap? Like you said, you're trying to connect with PCC and things like that. But I feel like we can industry push it. Is it something that we need industry to start telling higher ed? Like we need them to have more than just memorized information. They need to know how to analyze their data. They need to know how to find the patterns, right? Um, what, what thoughts do you have on that? Well, in my conversations with industry or career folks, um, mostly they want students to come to them with the skills. They need to know how to collaborate. They need to have perseverance and grit to doing and following through to completing a difficult problem. They, um, they, they need to have those kinds of things more than they need to have a lot of information that you can look up on Google. And when we have students individually sitting at their desk, working alone, as opposed to working in groups, talking with each other, sharing their ideas, making their thinking visible, being able to support their claims with evidence and reasoning, that's, those are the kinds of things that actually better prepare students for, um, to enter into the workforce. And, We've been trying to make those connections to career and technical education through uh, science. We feel that um, all students should really have exposure to that. And we are trying to um, just like, if you really like this, you might want to consider, you know, doing uh, solar panel work. If you really like that part of physics, um, trying to trying to be more explicit with that as opposed to making the assumption that students can figure that out on their own. Yeah, that's so interesting just thinking about like what it's like right now to be grinding like 5 million MCAT questions a day at this point it feels like um because it's true like on the MCAT there there definitely is like stuff you need to know which is like fair okay I get it like maybe you want your doctor to know things <laughs> um, but also there's um a lot of questions that are um most I mean most of them are passage based so you like read a science journal and then you like look at graphs and you have to like do things like be able to predict what you know speaking of biochem this like polyacrylamide gel might look like if you were to prove or disprove x y or z hypothesis so it's like yeah okay like i, I will concede <laughs> that <laughs> that's i a might good have question. to critically think <laughs> so assessments are changing because i don't not sure i saw anything like that when i took the mcat so um i'm so they the the real they're 
that valuing of other kinds of skills is getting into the assessment system, I think. Mm. Okay, that is good to hear. I'm glad that like, it's, it's always useful to think about like, where I am in this moment in education as like a continuum in yes. like a context, as opposed to doing the thing that all undergraduates are amazing at, which is complaining. Um, <laughs> so, so yeah, that is, that is quite hopeful. Um, Natalie, I feel like all your stories of education, like you, like, I feel like you did not all of them, first of all. So you've had bad experiences too, but I feel like you have been involved in this evolution, like during this time where you're like, well, one year was kind of like this and then it got better, right? Like you've lived through these shifts. Cause I remember you talking about when the NGSS came out and you're like, hmm, what do I think about this, right? Some teachers like it, some teachers don't. And it, it's just funny to think like you are that person. It's it's like my generation, we stopped using landlines, right? I'll remember <laughs> that one day, once we used landlines and now we don't anymore. Um, and I think you're going to be the person who hopefully it will be like, well, yeah, we used to have to memorize a lot, but then it started shifting to where I had to analyze data and I had to interpret results, um, which is still not fun to study, period, right? No one enjoys spending their free time studying <laughs> if they could go play. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, the, the flip side of that is like, I think because like the the high stakes format of the MCAT hasn't changed and the fact that it is a timed exam and it's not like you have that much time um mm -hmm. it does become very much like are you a good test taker as and so that is a different ball game um and so so it's possible for people who are good test takers who have not studied maybe as hard and maybe don't know as much as the next person to do better because like on the day of the exam, their brain shows up. <laughs> um, I was I was that person, like the ACTs, I did great, but the memorized stuff, I did not because I was never great at memorizing and I did fall victim to my generation was mostly memorizing. So I still did good in school, but I had to like sing songs and come up with these really crazy ways to remember key ideas. <laughs> I never learned them. I think I could still sing some of the songs to you too, but um, I was a cheerleader, so I'd make a cheer about it. And in my head, I'd be like, oh, for the periodic table, I'm going to have like a cheer to the periodic table. That's ridiculous. Right. Um, but I do remember how atomic weights relate to one another. Right. Like that makes a lot more sense to me. Um, but, you know, thinking about all the work you have done, it seems like advocacy and being an ally to um, underserved groups is really important to you, Susan. And I'm wondering what caused that for you what what made you realize like this is important work and I need to advocate for more students to have science or to make science for all like to be something that's important for others well um that's a good question I I think it started um with my own experiences of being a woman that was at times difficult in my field and different um people that were uh men that were not supporting me necessarily as much as I would have liked and, and women that were. So that kind of laid a foundation that it wasn't really a level playing field um, in science where everybody had an equal shot. And I, of course, had the privilege of college educated parents and white and middle class. And so I, um, I, you know, I had a lot of things going for me at that time. I think my next kind of turning point came from observing my own children's experience in science. Um, 
as they were going up through it, which is why I used to teach science on Fridays when they were elementary school, because they weren't getting it from the school. Um, and I thought, okay, there's all these faucets sitting in a closet. I can come in and teach, um, teach my children's classes if the teachers were open to it. So I would do that. I teach the whole class. So my own children would have science and then developing the science fairs. Um, I, we actually had every student in when my children were in elementary school participating in them for, cause for me, it was like, everybody should be doing it because it's so cool. Right? And it wasn't competitive science fairs. It was more of having students have an opportunity to look at something deeply that's of their own choice. So it's not being guided by adults. It's like, what are you interested in that you want to learn more about? And how can I, as an adult, help you um, develop that experiment or help you figure out how you can test your idea? And then sharing it with others in an evening event that parents could come that ended up being a huge event because we would bring in OMSI and bring in uh, hearts reptile world and then we would have all the classrooms would have science experiments that kids could go and do that night and they were wildly popular so it was this idea that everybody can do science not only a select few um, and then once I got when my kids got into high school um, I had a daughter that took chemistry and never did a lab, an entire year of chemistry, and they never did a lab. And I took chemistry in Kentucky, and we had two labs a week in Kentucky. And I was like, what is going on in Oregon that in a whole year, you don't do a single lab and in Kentucky in the 60s? Like, yeah. what's the point so, of taking so, chemistry if you can't blow stuff up? Like, isn't yeah, that the whole point? Yeah. <laughs> and it kind of impacted her options later. She, yeah. um, she wanted, she actually ended up being in archaeology and she didn't realize because of the kind of archaeology work that she was doing, dating snails that were used as a currency in the Persian Gulf area, that she needed to know chemistry to help with that analysis of uh, radioactive decay of certain elements that were in the snail shell so they can know when those snails got taken out of the water and she was like mom I wish I had a, you know better chemistry in high school because it really you know impacted my college and beyond and I also I I asked um I would ask everybody like what was the most important class that you needed to take in in high school and um, because chemistry wasn't, you know, only maybe 15% of our students were taking a full year of chemistry in Beaverton at the time, and 11% were taking a full year of physics at the time. And, um, and this one uh, gentleman that was a former logger um, who, who lost his job with the spotted owl had to go and, and to get re, um, to learn a new profession. And, but he wanted to be outside. He liked to be outside. And he um, decided he wanted to do waste treatment. He was working at the uh, Rock Creek uh, water treatment facility. And he said that his um, ability to do that job was hindered because he never took chemistry class. And chemistry is a huge part of managing waste treatment plants, both for the biological side 
of the treatment, which is like a large part of it, and the um, and the chemical side, which is like the final step. And he he lost a year of being able to get into the workforce because he had to take these initial chemistry classes at his community college and couldn't jump right into the program because he didn't have any high school chemistry. And so I, that I guess that was part of it. Yeah. I feel like it's so interesting because what you're speaking about, it's, I think everyone can, it resonates where I think everyone had a science course, if not more than one, where you're like, you know, I probably could have liked that, but the way it was taught, it did not engage me. Right. Like I think biology is amazing these days. Like I wish I knew more, but I was so turned off by my high school experience in it that I avoided it like the plague in college. And I did like chem and I did like physics. Um, but it was, and I can nail the specific experiences. They stand out in my mind as to what happened or what wasn't part of it that made it so icky. And I just, I hope that it is changing, right? I hope that like when, like for Natalie, I hope you have less experiences that are icky. I hope that the kids who are in high school now are like, yeah, you know, I had a teacher called it in law. We did that, right? I don't know. It's just interesting how impactful that is and how far reaching that experience is as well. I mean, one of the things that I have tried to do, and I think we were talking about allies, is to be an ally for students and to be able to make sure that in their public education, that we were not limiting their future choices, that we were providing the maximum support for any potential job or career that they might do in the future. One of the things that's come recently and it really has come out of COVID has been the need, and, and this is something I'm very proud of at Portland Public. We developed a, a climate change, climate justice um, course for high school. And part of that work was actually having a design team that was composed of both teachers and students to design the course. And we did that during COVID um, virtually. And there were more students than there were teachers designing that course. And it's a, a very fast growing course at Portland. But what I learned in that process was we were not asking students what they wanted to get out of their education. And they want to learn about climate change. They want, and, and Portland has made that commitment that there be climate change curriculum K-12 um, every year that students will learn something about climate change. But at the high school level, they are so interested in that. And a recent thing that's also come out of COVID is this idea of how do we incorporate social justice into science? Because that we found when we talked to students was a huge engagement piece for them, like how can we connect to this? And we're now uh, rewriting our first chemistry unit. Um, we're teaching kinetic molecular theory and motion around the rise of wildfires in Oregon and who is most impacted by those fires, which is the social justice piece. And so, to me, that's like what NGSS has afforded us by teaching through the phenomenon, that we can choose how we teach these kind of hardcore, you know, gas laws, but we can do it with the context of, yeah, remember when 
Oregon was on fire. Well, heat and the motion of molecules are, are affected by temperature. They move faster and the warmer it is, the faster they move. Um, I just wanted to like, yes, and all of the above. I am absolutely the product of science fair through middle school and high school. I remember in middle school, like everyone had to have a science fair project and we would take like almost everybody who wanted to basically to go to um, the Northwest Science Expo, um, which is also run by like incredibly dedicated people, just like yourself, who are so passionate about like this being really one of the only ways for students to engage in something in like science that they themselves want to do. Um, and I remember going and like getting some award. And then I remember my teacher being like, I like still remember he was like, can you believe it? Like, this is like the coolest thing ever. And that has brought me through so many other points of rejection in science since. Um, and so like, it really, cause it's so like pure and, because we were all like quite young. And so I think that it's so um, like creating all these formative, positive memories around the kind of science that kids want to do um, sets, it creates a sort of like insulatory barrier against like all the other BS that ends up happening to people later down the pipeline, which like, of course we want to avoid, but like, it's almost inevitably going to happen. Um, so I just like, it's, I can't like emphasize enough how much, how important that aspect is. The other thing um, I was thinking about with this like integration of things that we experience, i.e. Oregon being on fire with like science is that I didn't really get that until I was like much further in STEM. Like, um, I mean, and with degrees with degrees like it wasn't entirely in a vacuum uh, we like um even like in middle school but I think one of the more salient um examples is when in high school I was like in statistics or something and we looked at data from the HIV AIDS um, epidemic in the 80s and 90s um to look at how like data was manipulated to you know cause like this big scare about like gay people and gay men in particular um and so bringing in like the the parts about like environmental or social justice um is is, is like is, is that the sort of thing that like I feel like we remember mm -hmm. um like I couldn't tell you what else we did in like sixth grade but I could absolutely tell you about like this one thing we did but it, it reminds me of that educational saying that's like they won't remember what you taught them, but they'll remember how you made them feel, right? And obviously, if you also make them feel proud of themselves, they tend to remember what they've learned as well. But I do think what you're saying resonates with, yeah, if you make them feel proud of themselves or like they matter or like their problems matter or they can make a difference, they'll remember it and they'll be invested, exactly. right? So that's so great to hear, Natalie. What a great story. Yeah, it really warms my cold little heart. <laughs> <laughs> well, I made all my school students uh, do science fair as well. And, um, and then of course, I I've, uh, supported all the high school students doing science fair in Beaverton when I was there and students had amazing opportunities. My goal was that science would like be elevated to the level of athletics. It never really happened. 
Um, but science fair system is actually a huge scholarship opportunity for students. But most importantly, at the classroom level, it's that idea that every student gets a chance to investigate a question that they have in, about the world and, and, and be that expert on that thing. And I, I think it's a hugely valuable piece beyond the competitive part of it, which is a whole different kind of aspect of it. But how often do children get a chance to learn what it is that they want to learn, <laughs> that, they're, that they get to pick the thing um, that they're learning about? I don't think we do it enough. I'm wondering now that like you've you've had this like long and illustrious career in so many things like what's ahead for you now um like so often it's like oh like our lives are over the minute we stop working no 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 like what is what is on the horizon for you well I'm gonna still continue to work on um what we're on the uh the high school science sequence and um we're working with Oregon Department of Education right now, um, the Portland Metro STEM Partnership to expand the program further into Oregon. And um, we're trying to professionalize it. It is a teacher, it's an open source curriculum written by teachers for teachers, um, but there's still some work that needs to be done uh, teacher supports and notes, extensions, um, supports for special education, increased support for English emerging bilinguals. Um, so that's going to be a major piece of work, but I'm also going to be um, working with districts as they implement this. Um, Salem-Kaiser is implementing it right now. So the top four districts in Oregon now, the biggest four rather, are all teaching this patterns, but there's actually 44 districts in Oregon that are using it. So that's a big part of my work. I'm also the chairman of the board for the Lower Columbia River Estuary Partnership, which is a huge, um, an organization that works on restoring and monitoring the Columbia River below the Bonneville Dam. And, um, so I'm still very involved in that. And I'm still a member and executive um, on the executive board for the Oregon Science Teacher Association. So I'll be uh, continuing to support teachers across Oregon through our conferences and webinars. And uh, Tiffany was part of that. So um, uh, I, I'm not giving that up. I actually might have more time to actually do work being retired. So I, I actually think I'm still kind of working. <laughs> I've just retired from public education, Portland Public um, specifically. Yeah, so it's not real retirement. It's like quasi-retirement. Yeah, right? It's uh, quasi. I, there is a special stress that comes with public schools, though, especially lately. So I feel like that'll be a good one. That should be a break. Yeah, it's a break. That's good. We have a game and before we close, we want to know if you would like to play it with us. It's called This and That and it's a game adapted from the Versus, Poet Versus Poetry podcast. We're going to ask you to choose either the best of something or the worst of something. And the only object is to answer as fast as you can. Um, do you want to do the best or the worst of things, Susan? I'll do the best. I like to think positively. That's so good. Perfect. Okay, what's the best thing to do on the Oregon coast. Mm. 
just walking along the coast, hearing the roar of the ocean, looking out at the sea stacks and the birds, um, just seeing the cliffs, just being in this magnificent location. I, I love it. I, it's why we came back to Oregon from New York. We, we missed the Oregon coast so much. We're like, why are we here in New York? We need to go to Oregon so we could be close to the beach. So I feel like I know you're a conference attender. So I like this one. What is the best place to go to a conference or that you've gone to a conference? I really like going to a conference in Seattle. And, um, but right up there would be Boston. They're both on water. I like water. Mm. Um, There's, and I, I would say the primary conferences that I go to are NSTA, National Science Teacher Association conferences. Those are both locations that they've been at. And um, so enough time when you're finished with learning and exploring the cities, um, both of those cities have just been really fun to get out and learn about, explore. Totally, yeah. <laughs> I was, that definitely beats Indianapolis. I was there for a conference earlier this time. <laughs> it does. <laughs> best pasta shape. Oh, best pasta. Well, we're a spaghetti family, so I like awesome. the thick, the thicker spaghetti. And um, I, I don't, I know that there's probably a specialized name for it, but the box I buy is like thick spaghetti. Best place to read a book. Well, I will be honest that I love reading on Sunday mornings in my bed. It's the one day that I have allowed myself in all of the years where I've been working very, very long hours that I can give myself grace to lay in my bed for an hour or two after I'm awake and read before I have to do anything else. I'm sure you couldn't do that when your kids were young, though. No, they would be joining us in bed. Oh, that's so nice. Probably would be reading children's books to them. But yeah, they, yeah, it was, we had to buy a king size mattress pretty early on. I have three children, so everybody could fit in the bed. And it was always like, who's going to get next to a parent and who was going to have to be in the middle. Um, (laughs) They would just be like puppies rolling around each other to try to get their positions. What a fun family tradition. Sunday bed book reading. That's great. (laughs) What's the best, uh, since I'm on a food bender, I guess right now, what's the best cookie? Best cookie is a homemade chocolate chip cookie that's still warm from the oven. Not hot, but warm. Yes, there you go. It's still soft. That is good. You don't want to burn the roof of your mouth. That's no fun. That ruins it if you have two. (laughs) Heard it here first. (laughs) All right. Well, yay. You won. Thank you. Thank you so much for, yeah, you won the game and thanks for taking it. Thanks for letting us interview you. It's been really wonderful. I feel like we, we got into the end of your career, right? Because we're like at that point and it's not the end. Let's be clear because actually you're continuing, but I feel like I wish we had another time to dig into like your early experiences in industry. Cause I have so many questions about that also, yeah, but there's some tales yeah, to be told you. there. <laughs> I bet. I feel like when we talk about like particular experiences women have often those come out in those industry experiences too, which I think our listeners still experience. Mm -hmm. So it's often nice to hear about those too um, and how people work through them. But yeah, 
sorry we didn't get to those pieces. We might have to just come revisit you again or find you in your quasi retirement. Yes. <laughs> Bring you back. Sounds good. All right. All right. Well. And that's it for today's podcast. Thank you so much for listening to Wisterhood. Make sure to subscribe so you'll know when we drop more episodes and comment so more folks can find us. Or just tell people about us. That's the best way to spread the word. And tell us your stories or ask questions you'd like answered on the pod. You can email us at podcast at womeninsciencepdx.org. We'd love to hear from you. And of course, special thanks to Homo Kostrayani, who designed our awesome cover art. Before we sign off, we wanted to give you three easy ways that you can support WISPDX. If you have Instagram, you can go to at Women in Science PDX and follow us. Make sure to like at least our most recent post so that the algorithm knows that you might want to see this content. Um, Instagram's algorithm recently went through a change where you might not even see all the photos posted by the people that you follow. So this way you can stay on top of all the new events, blog posts, and podcast episodes that we work hard to put together for the community. The second thing you can do is just subscribe to our um, podcast on the platform that you listen to it, uh, listen to it on. And third, if you feel comfortable and have the resources to donate to our nonprofit, you can head to womeninsciencepdx.org/donate. Your money goes straight to things like our high-demand scholarships for low-income schools and educators, and honorariums for negotiation boot camp instructors and speakers. <laughs>